Amen. Amen. We're going to have a seat. And uh, we'll get to Acts uh, 10 here in a moment. Uh, But before we do here, I want to start. Many of you, most of you are probably aware that uh, this Sunday uh, is what we call uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday or Right uh, to Life Sunday. And I'll tell you as a pastor that uh, I'm always conflicted on this Sunday. Not conflicted over the issue, not not at all. uh, We're all for life because God's all for life. Here's, Here's where I find myself being torn is that no doubt, no doubt what we want or desire Uh, is that all of humanity would come to the place where they value life in a manner, in a way that's congruent with the way that God values life. But I think sometimes in our passion and our zeal for that, um, we we can be quite crushing uh, to those um, who have at some point in their life made the decision uh, to to have an abortion. And uh, I, I don't come at this from a distance. My mom, my mom didn't grow up as a believer. Uh, My mom used to, in her early 20s, used to counsel women uh, to have abortions. And I remember one time asking my mom, uh, probably five, six years ago, I said, Mom, do you have any regrets in life? Do you have any regrets? And my my mom isn't, she's not someone who cries very often, okay? And so if my mom starts crying, it's usually a pretty big deal. And uh, about five years ago, she just started sobbing. She said, I have one regret. I have one regret. Uh... I regret that I had counseled those women to do that. And so for me, this, this tension is uh, we're all for life because God's all for life. But, but I hold that in, in, in equal tension with we're all for the God's grace and his freedom that's found in the gospel. And so where normally we would pray for another church in the area, in a moment I'm going to pray. I want to pray for CareNet. Uh, Mary LeCue, uh, who is the director of CareNet, she uh, attends uh, Faith Church. She's a member here. Uh, and I want to pray for agencies like that. But really my heart for us this morning is, is that the gospel would win in this issue. Not, not, not that we would win. I would love to see us win legislatively, but I would love to see us win because the gospel has first captured hearts on this issue. And we see life the way that God sees life. And in equal measure, I don't know about you, but um, I don't exactly have a clean slate when it comes to my history. Uh, I'm guessing you're no different either. And as some of you, man, some of you, this abortion thing is very real to you. It's very raw to you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And where the gospel of God's grace would permeate each and every man, woman, and child. That's tied to this. So let's do this. Let's, let's uh, go before the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, regarding this issue, regarding our time together, and then we'll come uh, to Acts chapter 10. Join me. Lord Jesus, we uh, bow before you, we come before you, and we recognize, God, that, that um, it's, it's by your grace and by your grace alone uh, that we're saved. It's by your grace and by your grace alone that we're made different. Um, God, we, we could never outwork uh, our past, our failures, our shortcomings. There's there, no way, God, no doubt that we could j- not even come close to attaining what you call us to do or be. God, where we would normally pray for a church today, we pray for CareNet and we pray for agencies like that that work with, minister to, care for those who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, those who consider uh, terminating uh, the birth of that uh, child. God, we pray, I pray even thinking of uh, so many women right now, today, wondering, questioning, waffling, wavering back and forth. God, I pray that life would prevail 
that you would win. Uh, but not simply that life would prevail, but God, I pray that the gospel would prevail that it would prevail in the hearts and minds of those who are considering whether or not to have an abortion, that it would prevail uh, in, in all of our hearts and minds as we think about this whole issue and having a great value that we place upon life. God, that it would prevail in the hearts and minds of our country where we would begin to see this issue differently, not because we've changed people's minds, but because you've changed people's hearts, Lord Jesus. Would you do that, Lord, please? And God, while you're changing hearts, would you change ours? Would you change ours right now, right here this morning as we come to you, as we open your word, as we look at what you have for us in Acts chapter 10? Lord Jesus, would you change our hearts to reflect your heart, to, to, to see things in a way that you see, to, to function in a way that you function, to understand how you are moving and working in people's lives and that we would see that in a manner that would encourage us, that it would bless us, that it would move us forward. God, would you do that, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, well, get your Bibles out. Acts chapter 10. And uh, coming back to the book of Acts, having stepped away for about a month during the holiday season, but now uh, back uh, to the book of Acts and our sermon series, Total Church. Uh, the whole the whole of church for the whole church and really seeing the comprehensive element of uh, what the church was intended to be and what God intended the church uh, to be. And the uh, title of the message this morning is Salvation Orchestrated. Uh, Salvation Orchestrated. And uh, let me just begin to move our hearts and our minds towards the text by uh, maybe posing this question to you. Uh, have you ever had a scenario, ever had a time in your life, uh, something unfold in your life, where, where you could see God's hand controlling the entire situation? I mean, I'm talking uh, top to bottom, uh, back to front, whole thing. You see God's hand just moving uh, throughout the entire situation. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I can think of a number of uh, situations in my life. One of the clearest examples of that is probably uh, when our twins were born. And uh, so when the twins, uh, Becky and I, that was, that's our, our, our oldest, we had twins. Uh, we kind of went with the go big or go home motif, literally, right, Becky, uh, for a little while there, carrying two, a uh, pretty huge belly there uh, for a while. And um, we'd actually just moved back from Europe. So we were in the process of buying a home, buying a car, buying everything imaginable. And <clears throat> so on this particular day, uh, August 24th, Becky and I went to the hospital. Early afternoon, we were going through, she was 32 weeks pregnant to do our uh, hospital walkthrough. You know, where they kind of tell you about everything and uh, whatnot. In fact, this is, the, I, I don't really like to share uh, failures of mine, but I'm looking at my brother and I just thinking about this. I actually called Joey on the way to the hospital and I said, hey man, we're on our way to the hospital. You got to pray for Becky and the kids. It was a prank. Bad idea. Horrible idea. I get it. So he calls me back and he's terrified. I'm like, oh no, I was just kidding, man. We're just going through the walkthrough. I think there was probably a few choice words that were rightfully exchanged uh, on his behalf. But God has a sense of humor because it was only a few hours later and we were back in the hospital uh, because Becky's water had broke eight weeks early. And uh, one of our biggest fears was that if she went into premature labor that we'd get stuck down in Phoenix uh, for a number of weeks because of the kids. And just a few hours earlier, God had allayed those fears in that walkthrough. And so we spent six weeks in the hospital. In fact, some of our dearest friends uh, we met while we were there. And I, I could go on for days about all the different ways that God orchestrated this entire thing. In fact, our first night, uh, Trenton went home uh, a day or two before Jason did. Our first night where we took Trenton home was our first night in our new house. And all kinds of different things where God moved and he worked and he orchestrated. And we look back on that and all of the different moving parts and pieces. And we go, <laughs> God did that. 
God moved, God worked, God put all of that together. And see, we come to a passage in the scriptures this morning where we're going to find ourselves saying that exact same thing. We're not going to go, man, Peter, that was phenomenal, or Cornelius, that guy really had it together. We're going to go, God did that. God orchestrated this whole thing. God was, God was at work in bringing this all together. Of course, here we're not talking about babies. We're talking about salvation in the lives of men and women done only by the power of God, by the hand of God. And yet he's doing it today as well. I want you to see that. I want you to know that, that God is actively at work, that God is orchestrating salvation today in the hearts and lives of people that you and I are around. Whether we see it or not, it's true. So salvation orchestrated, if we could, if we could say it in a sense, if we could sum it up, we would sum it up this way, that God orchestrates salvation in the lives of his people at the perfect time. Okay, let me say that again. God orchestrates salvation in the lives of his people at the perfect time. God is never late, and loved ones, God is never early. Sometimes we wish he were, right? God, if you could just show up a little bit earlier, that'd be fantastic. He's never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. As we look at this passage, just a couple of things here before we dive into it, just to kind of help frame it for us. Uh, there's really two things that Luke is doing as he writes here. One is, is from a big picture perspective. In the larger narrative of the book of Acts, we see that salvation is coming to the Gentiles which is an absolutely ludicrous thought for any Jew in that day. I mean, it was just beyond the realm of comprehension that, that, the, that anyone who was not Jewish, especially a Gentile, could have salvation from God. And yet throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we saw this, right? I mean, in Isaiah, uh, God uh, told the nation of Israel that you're going to be a light unto the nations. All the way back in Exodus, uh, God told Moses, you're to be a kingdom of priests, right? A priest being a go-between of, of God and man. Jonah, Jonah was a prophet, not to the nation of Israel. He was to an entirely different nation, to a Gentile nation. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this movement. But even then, it was still shocking. Even when Jesus said in Acts 1 that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, they probably thought, well, he's just kind of talking about like the outskirts or, or Jews who are scattered. I'm not sure they had the Gentiles in mind. And so we see this big picture, but there's also very much this very narrow, very specific element of Cornelius, this person. And while we'll focus in on uh, more on the specific element and be challenged by that, I don't want us to lose uh, the larger scope of the bigger picture. I also want to point out, this is actually the longest narrative uh, in uh, the book of Acts regarding uh, Peter. And I think it's tied to that reality of, of the Gentiles uh, coming to saving faith. And as we move through this, we'll begin to see all the details and the nuance and all the ways that God is moving and working to bring this about. So salvation orchestrated, let's begin to dive into the text, see this unfold. Here's the first thing we see. We see three things here this morning. Here's the first, and really probably the first two-thirds of the text is uh, tied around this. And it's this, when we talk about salvation being orchestrated, we see a sovereign preparation, that there's a sovereign preparation that's taking place, that the word sovereign there, meaning supreme or the ruler or in control of, specifically in this text where God is sovereignly preparing really a number of individuals for what's about to unfold. And in fact, how I want us to move through the first 33 verses is to see each of these groups and how God is sovereignly preparing them for the salvation that is coming. And so we'll start where Luke starts. Look at chapter 10, starting in verse 1. He tells us this. 
He says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. <clears throat> and then he begins to tell us about Cornelius, that he was a centurion. It meant he was over roughly a hundred Roman soldiers, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Then he begins to tell us a little bit about Cornelius' character. In verse 2, he says this, He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds like a pretty good description. If someone said, hey, this is Mike, I'd be, I'd be comfortable with that description. But here's what you got to know. He is a God-fearer, not a Christ-follower at this point. And there's a huge distinction between the two. I'll begin to flesh that out here in a moment. So notice here in verse 3 what begins to happen in Cornelius' life at about the ninth hour of the day. That's about 3 in the afternoon. I think that's important because he's not dreaming here. This isn't happening in the middle of the night. You ever have one of those dreams where you wake up and be like, I had the weirdest dream. You know what I'm talking about? Like he, he could have had that, but it doesn't happen at three in the afternoon. And so in the middle of the day, he has this vision and an angel of God comes to him and says, uh, Cornelius, verse four, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? Now I, I should point out that what is it, Lord, isn't simply a uh, statement, a polite response. It's actually Cornelius essentially saying, I'm willing to obey any instruction that you would choose to give me. So right from the word go, he's saying, I will handle any instruction, anything that you would choose to say, anything that you would offer to me, I will hear what it is that you want me to hear. And the angel goes on and says this, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. And so, okay, you get that? I want you to go, and, and he's, in, he, he's in Caesarea. Joppa's about 37 miles south down the coast. He's like, I want you to send some people. Go grab this guy. He's saying, with this guy, they're by the sea. Bring him back to you. And with that, right, verse 7, when the angel spoke to him and departed, now he had a choice to make. He chooses obedience. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Right, so Luke starts with Cornelius, and he tells him about him and how God's moving and working and preparing him in his heart. Now, as a God-fearer, right, you, you might say, no, 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 wait a second, wait a second. He, he, he's, he, he's doing the things he's supposed to do. He's moving <clears throat> and working in the way that, that God has called him to be. And yes, he's a good guy. He's not a Christ follower. And what I want you to understand as we look at this is that God is not put into Cornelius' debt here. Okay, all the good that he is doing, God's not going, you know what, I owe him. I owe him now. What Luke is really revealing to us, what he's making known to us, is Cornelius had a heart for God. He had a sincere desire to know the one true living God. And God's going to respond to that by sending Peter to share the truth of the gospel with him. That's what's unfolding here. And part of that preparation, part of that work that's unfolding is this very thing. But being a good person doesn't make you right with God. You've got to understand that. Being a good person is not going to make you and I right with God. I think even as mature believers, sometimes we fall into this tendency. We think, well, if I try harder, if I do more, I can somehow tip the scales as if we're before us. God's kind of like, yeah, you know, Marty, I don't really know about you. Okay, work, 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 work. Scales start to tip. Hey, you know, I kind of like you, actually. It didn't work like that. It's not moving in that way. See, the only way that you and I are made right by God is through 
the death of his son in your place and in my place. We're made right because of what Christ has done for us, how God has moved and worked in our life. And so really what we see in verse 2, what we see in verse 4 and verse 5 isn't about Cornelius being so much, so much that he's a great guy, but more about the issue of his heart and a desire to truly please and honor God. And in doing so, God's going to respond to that. And he begins to prepare Cornelius. Some of this preparation you could even say was taking place over months or years of his life that's going to lead to a specific moment that's going to unfold here later in the passage. Then in verse 9, Luke moves from Cornelius and he moves the story uh, away both from Cornelius' character and location to Peter. So look at verse 9. It says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city. So like if you, if you, this was a movie, Cornelius has this thing and he sends these guys. You see the sunset, sun rises and there's Peter. We know that a day has passed and he shows maybe the guys on the road and then he focuses in on Peter as you can see the trajectory happening here. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. It's about noon, lunchtime. <laughs> I love verse 10. This is so real. I mean, how many of us can relate to this? Okay, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go spend some time with Jesus. I'm, I'm going to get right with him. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, right? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for today. And God, I'm kind of hungry. Can I go eat lunch? Can, we, can I pause? Can we take a time out? Can I get a PB&J? Can we come back to this? I mean, it's just, it's real. I mean, it's just real life. And he begins to get hungry. And so notice, but while they were preparing it, the lunch, he fell into a trance. Now don't think, don't think that Peter is deliriously hungry and he's having one of those cartoon visions, you, you know, where they're like stranded on an island and they get hungry and everyone turns into like a turkey or a ham or something like that and he's like, ah, okay, that's not what's happening. Okay, it's noon. It's not four in the afternoon, he hasn't eaten all day or he hasn't gone weeks without eating, it's noon time. But maybe it is on his mind and that's part of what God intended. But look at verse 11, he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being lit down by its four corners upon the earth. In a were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter's looking at this sheet full of animals, some of which he uh, would understand, yes, that's uh, appropriate and okay for me to eat, some which clearly he uh, understands by the dietary restrictions and the law that's laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, amongst other places, that he can't, because that's, uh, look at his response in verse 14. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Pretty much anything that wasn't dedicated to the service of the Lord was seen as common. There was common and pure. And then there was clean and unclean. Unclean was anything that fell outside the bounds or the restrictions of what God had laid out in the law. And Peter's saying, listen, I haven't eaten any of this. I haven't partaken in any of this. Notice what... It said in verse 15, the voice came to him again a second time. And it says this, what God has made clean, do not call common. Pretty profound word there. And we don't know when. We, we know eventually Peter understands it. We don't know if he gets it immediately. We don't know if it takes him a couple of hours or a day. Or we know by the time he's in Caesarea, he puts the dots together. And in fact, in verse 16, it says this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So three times, three times he hears this, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so, right, the, the men are in route. God is sovereignly preparing them. He's sovereignly preparing 
Peter, and he has this vision. And notice in verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, so can you see him sitting on the roof like, what just happened? And what is that about? And what am I to do with this? Notice, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. You want to talk about perfect timing? Right, there's perfect timing there. Whoa, that was weird. What's that about? God, I don't really understand it. Knock, knock, knock. Right? Uh, apparently the other Simon comes to the door. Hey, what's up? Yeah, I'm looking for a guy named Peter. He's actually on the roof. Hold on, let me get him. But before that could even happen, notice what Luke goes on to tell us. Right? They, they call out and ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And as that's happening, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. God's saying, There are men downstairs looking for you for a specific purpose. Go see them. Go with them. Now, you, you can't tell me God's not putting all this together. You can't tell me that he's not working this and, and orchestrating this and, and making all of this come to pass. In verse 21, Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? God tells Peter to go at once, and he goes. Now, we've seen this with Cornelius. We see it with Peter. We'll see it again a couple other times here in the text. Let me just point this out right here, this issue of obedience. This issue of obedience... God told Cornelius to go do something, and he did it. Kind of extreme, I might add. Peter has kind of an odd vision, and then God says, uh, hey, go downstairs right now. There's some guys that I want you to go with, and what does he do? He gets up, and he goes down, and he meets with them. See, there's this issue of obedience, this issue of obedience. Now, just ask yourself, ask yourself, when God asks you to do something, am I obedient to do what he asked me to do? How about when it seems a little bit odd or maybe it feels a little bit extreme or maybe it's a little bit out there? Am I willing to do the thing that God has called me to do? Am I willing to do the thing that God has asked me to do? Sometimes it's very, very simple. It's, it's very clear. It's very direct. Other times, maybe it's a little odd. Maybe it's just downright weird. Maybe for the life of you, are like, I can't understand why God is telling me to do this, but I feel like he just keeps telling me to do it. Are you willing to be obedient are you willing to respond? I love the example of these guys and their obedience and their willingness to respond. God help us that we would be challenged by that. Verse 22, they respond to Peter's comment. They say, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Now, at this point, I think Peter's like, okay, hey, I'm going to go. I'm guessing there's a part of him that's saying, hey, can we wait till after lunch uh, before we go? I've been hungry for a while. This thing keeps unfolding. And so I think uh, that's why we see verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guest. He's like, come on in. Let's eat uh, before we think about going. In fact, let's eat dinner too, and let's go tomorrow. And so that's what we see here. Uh, second half of verse 23, the next day he rose and went away with them. And then I want you to mark this next line. Because I think for many of us, this is maybe the crux of where God wants to speak into us, into our lives this morning. Uh, some of the other brothers from Joppa accompanied him. It's a pretty inconsequential line. And yet later in the text, it'll become pretty substantial. But we see God's sovereign preparation in Cornelius. We see God's sovereign preparation in Peter. In Peter. Uh, and uh, now we see God's sovereign preparation in the Jewish believers. Now remember, remember, 
They would have never have considered, would have never thought that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. I mean, in fact, the idea that the Gentiles could experience the fullness of God was the most ludicrous thought imaginable. Even the temple bore that out. You have the court of the Gentiles. That was like the furthest point from the Holy of Holies. That was the furthest any Gentile could go. And then you have the court of the women and the court of the men and, and then, you know, where the priests would go and the Holy of Holies and all. I mean, just these progressions. But the Gentiles were always the furthest away. And see, part of the preparation, part of the preparation that's taking place isn't solely for those who will receive salvation, but it's, it's to open the eyes of others as to who could receive salvation. Because how often, right, how often do we rule out the possibility that some people could truly or honestly get saved? Right, we know it in our head. We know it in our head. Well, yeah, of course, anyone could, could, could get saved. Anyone, it's possible. Come on, let's be honest here, loved ones. How often do we come to the place where we go, you know, that person's not fit. That person's not worthy. That person's not good enough. Jesus could never redeem such a sinner as that. I mean, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we go to that place. We go to that place where we think that, that some are worthy and some aren't. And yet, isn't that the very point of the gospel? That none of us are worthy. That none of us deserve God's grace. That none of us have earned it. None of us have achieved it. None of us have merited it. None of us have tipped the scales of works where God, we now put God into our debt or find favor with him. None of us have done that. It's the work of God and his movement and Jesus' sacrifice in our place. And I think part of what's unfolding here is it's to open the eyes of these men, of these Jewish believers, to come to the place where they understand that the gospel truly has no bounds. It truly has no limitations. And yet I think for far too many of us, for far too many of us, we are far, far, far too short-sighted when it comes to this reality of the gospel. Are you too short-sighted? Are you too short-sighted in how you think about the gospel and the people you think about the gospel? The, the, the people in your life that, that maybe you believe are somehow beyond the realm or the scope of what God would choose to do, beyond the reach of the gospel of God's grace? Are we too short-sighted? Do we look at some people and go, they could never be saved. They, God could never work or move in them. And maybe you need to have an experience like these guys are about to experience. That the gospel, that the gospel knows no bounds. That it knows no limits. That there's no one beyond the reach of the grace of God. And they're going to have their eyes opened here in a few moments. And maybe you need to have your eyes opened. Maybe we have too narrow a view of the gospel. And God's ability to impact those who are far from him. And God help us, God help us that we would not limit or restrict the gospel in any way that God uh, would not do. And so we see God sovereignly preparing Cornelius. We see him preparing Peter. We see him uh, preparing Jewish believers and to really expand their understanding of the gospel and salvation. And then this, 
Verse 24, uh, they, the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. Right? He's like, hey guys, I had this vision and this guy's coming, I think, but you're going to probably want to be here when he gets here. You're going to want to hear what he has to hear. And so he invites all these different people. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Kind of one of those whoops moments like, oh, whoops, my bad. Okay, you're right. Uh, You're right, Peter setting him straight. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And see, now he begins to reveal that he's understood what God's intent was with that vision. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Dang, there it is. See, there it is. The, the, the vision wasn't about food or I'm a Jew and now I can have pork chops. It wasn't about that. It was about understanding people and God's heart for people and the desire to see that the gospel is for all. And I should not call any person common or unclean. And he gets it. And, and you have to understand the whole thing with the food. Okay, why food? What, what's he really getting at there? Well, understand in that day and age, to share a meal with someone was one of the most intimate expressions of friendship and relationship that you could possibly do. And so what he's saying is that you would be able to invite them essentially into fellowship is really part of what's going on in that particular situation. And so Peter begins to understand this. He, he, he gets this. And so then he says this in verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you then why you sent me, though I'm guessing he probably has an idea as to why uh, he's been sent. And so in verse 30, Cornelius begins to recount uh, what unfolded in the first part of the chapter and talks about sending for Simon. I want to focus in on verse 33. He says this, So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. See, the fourth group that God's preparing here is the Gentiles. Another word for that is anyone who's far from God, who's not walking with the Lord, those uh, who are outside the realm of salvation in that particular moment that God's preparing them. That all these different things that began to unfold a few days, three, four, five days ago that started with Cornelius and then moving and working in Peter and now leading to this moment right here where there's this group of people that are gathered to hear what Peter has to say to them. And it's all, all, all the sovereign preparation of God. That God moves people to the specific time and the specific place that they need to hear. Now listen, loved ones, you've got to hold on to that truth. You got to hold on to that truth that it's God who moves, that God who directs, that God brings us to that place of understanding. Because for far too many of us, we've got loved ones in our lives, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, whatever it may be, that we so long, we so long to see them come to know Jesus. Any, anyone have a situation like that in their life? Someone you so long? Really? Most of you, everyone you know, knows the Lord? Okay, or are you guys just kind of snoozing on me? You want to try that again? Okay, I think we've, we've got the doze off factor going here. Okay, how, how many people have someone in their life you want to see come to know the Lord? right? And if, if you can't honestly raise your hand, you need to meet someone new. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, you got to go meet someone new. You got to change that. It's part of living on mission. But see, for all of us, all of us, all of us, we find ourselves in that place. God, why? Why are you not moving? Why are you not responding? Why, why are they not being saved? And God's saying, because there's a specific time and a specific place that I'm moving them to. That's why. 
And in the same way that there was a specific time and a specific place for all of these people here, the guy's orchestrating this. I look at verse 33 now. We're all here in the presence of God to hear what you've been commanded by the Lord. They know God's about to say something through Peter. I love that. They're like, God's going to speak through you, man. We know it. It's like, have you ever been in the place where you show up with someone and it's like, hey, I need to get saved? You ever had a conversation like where they're telling you that? Those are fun conversations. This is like one of those conversations right here where God does this and he brings them together. Now hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. It's the same today. It's the same today. And that person that you love, that person that you care so deeply about, that you long to see them to be in a particular place between themselves and the Lord, and you're like, God, why, why, why? Because it's not time, that's why. You keep being faithful and doing your part. You let God do his part. See, I find great comfort in this. I find great comfort that none of this depends upon me. It all depends upon the sovereign hand of God, that God's the one who moves, that God's the one who works, that God's the one who prepares, that brings them to the particular place. That's God's job. God does all of that. And we rest in that. Now, there's one thing. There's one thing that you and I are responsible for, and it's what we see here in the next part of the text, starting in verse 34. When we uh, see, first of all, sovereign preparation... Uh, now we see gospel proclamation. Okay, there's gospel proclamation. Th- th- this is our part. This is where you and I step in. This is where you and I do the work that God has for us. Let me start here in verses 34 and 35 uh, for a moment. It says this, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, it's gospel proclamation. And where God brings about the entirety of the preparation, he moves everyone to the specific place, to the specific time. This is what it is that I want you to be and hear and whatever. And then it comes to you and I. And you and I have something to say. Right? And here it's Peter. In our lives, it's you and I, this responsibility to proclaim. Right? We talk about that in our mission statement. Proclaiming Jesus and making disciples. What are we as a church? Well, we really do two things. One is we proclaim Jesus. The other is we make disciples. Right here it is. It's, it's gospel proclamation. It's proclaiming what Jesus has done. It's talking about the good news that Jesus has died in your place and in my place to make us right with God. And repeatedly as we've moved through the book of Acts that we've said over and over again, our only responsibility is what Christ told us all the way back in, in chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. And a witness, what, what was a witness do? Well, they, they testify. They give testimony to. They speak to something that's happened or unfolded. And so all you and I are supposed to do is, here's what Christ has done. Here's what Christ has done in my life. That's your job. That's my job. That's what it is to proclaim Jesus. All the preparation, all the heart change, all the persuasion, that's on God. You and I, we just simply start, we just do the proclamation. So I want you to notice, I want you to notice as we move through this here, these next few verses, Really three things that that we see from Peter. I want us to be challenged, one, in understanding what it is that we actually proclaim. The gospel really is simple. It's not complicated. But before he gets to that, he really starts with the mindset. He starts with the mindset around this. And so see this, first of all, we read verses 34 and 35, and it's really what we see here. The mindset is this, is that the gospel is available to all that the gospel is available to all, right? Peter holds two critical items in tension here. Uh, He says this. He says, first of all, that God shows no partiality. 
shows no partiality. God has no favorites, which is great because that also means God doesn't have a least favorite. Right? God, God, God's not up there in heaven going, man, I love the Jews. I love the Jews. But what's the deal with Canadians, man? I can't stand those people. Right? God's not doing that. Or he's not like, you know, those Chinese, I just think the world of the Chinese. But what's up with the Japanese? Those guys just can't. I mean, that, that's not happening. Okay? God loves people. He loves people. He shows no partiality. And so there's no distinction. Now, some of us, some of us may appear more externally righteous than others. But don't miss this, loved ones. God shows no partiality. Okay, but you've got to hold that intention with what Peter goes on and says. He says, but in, any, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, he holds that intention, this no partiality intention with a fear of God, a respect of God, a reverence or an honoring of God. God makes the gospel available to all, but listen, listen, listen. He does it on his terms. He does it on his terms and his way. And increasingly more and more, we live in a society that we want to frame the gospel. Hey, Jesus, we thank you for the salvation. We'll do the PR on how this thing really works. Doesn't work like that. Jesus is like, you get my gospel and you get it on my terms. Take it or leave it. That's what Peter's saying here. He's like, take it or leave it, man. This is how this works. It's available to all, but you, you have to do it on God's terms and God's way and God's manner. This idea that salvation is free, right? We understand that, that salvation is free. It's not by works of righteousness, which I've done, but according to his mercy, he saved me, right? Salvation's free. Titus 3 tells us, Ephesians 2, right? John 3, 16. We quote all kinds of different verses about salvation being free. But following Jesus will cost you everything. Right? Jesus talks repeatedly about um, taking up your cross. The cross was a symbol of death. He's talking about dying to yourself, forsaking all. That cost you everything. Remember in Matthew 13, he talks about those different parables about the kingdom. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure and upon finding it goes and sells all that he has. Or finding a great pearl and upon finding it goes and sells all that he has. Right? It's forsaking all. Yes, the gospel is available to all. God shows no partiality. But he offers the gospel on his terms, not on ours. That's the mindset. It's free to all. But you've got to do it the way that I'm calling you to do it. So then notice now, here's really the content, if you will, of the gospel. What it is that would be shared. And starting in verse 36, Peter really begins a, a, a summary of the life of Jesus. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. It's like, just in case you're wondering, he's Lord of all. A quick parenthetical thought, and then he comes back. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So we see gospel proclamation. The mindset is that the gospel is available to all. Okay, what's the content? What is it that we're after? Well, first of all, um, what he's leading us to here in verses 36 through 41, and we'll fill out in these next two verses, is that salvation comes through Jesus Christ and through him alone. That's where he's starting. He's like, listen, here's, here's, here's the terms. It starts 
and ends with the person of Jesus. That's why you can talk about God till you're blue in the face and people don't mind and you say the name Jesus and you get just this myriad of reactions. Because it starts and ends with the person of Jesus. That's his whole point. He's talking about the person of Jesus and what God did in him and through him. And it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. There's nothing else that you could add or subtract to that. It's simply Jesus Christ and him alone. That is the equation of salvation. And so salvation comes through Jesus. That's part of what we have to be proclaiming. That's part of what we have to be making known. Okay, now notice what he says in verse 42 and 43. He says this, he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Kind of a scary thought to think about God judging us, but that's exactly what happens. He goes on and says this, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his, through Jesus' name. Salvation comes through Jesus and it comes through him alone because there's a need of forgiveness through Jesus and we can only be forgiven through Jesus alone. And that's what he's driving at, this this idea of the mention of sin, that you and I have to be forgiven of sin, that we have to be cleansed of sin, we have to be made right by what God has done for us. And both, both where we would understand that, where we would recognize that, where we would realize that, but as we go to people, that's really the simplicity of the gospel. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, through Jesus Christ alone, because it's forgiveness, it's forgiveness that comes, forgiveness of our sins that comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. And to embrace what Christ has done for you, to walk with him in that manner, is to move yourself into a position where you are right with God. That's all there is to it. That's what it is to have gospel proclamation. This salvation orchestrated starts with a sovereign preparation. Uh, then we have gospel proclamation, really the work that you and I do. And then here's the final thing in verses 44 to 48. I just put this down. I just put true salvation. And so notice what happens. <clears throat> Luke writes, while Peter was still saying these things, right? He's talking about the prophets who bear witness uh, of Jesus and believing in him. And so, so Peter's like, hey, and Isaiah tells us this, and Jeremiah tells us this, and Ezekiel tells us this. As he's saying these things, check this out. The Holy Spirit f- fell on all who heard the word, And believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay, well, how do they know that? Well, here's how. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing? These people have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So here's Peter talking, 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 and all of a sudden, bam, Holy Spirit shows up and they just start praising God and talking about how great God is. At that point in time, he probably just shut up and was like, what is going on? What is happening? This is phenomenal. Like, let's get them baptized. Let's get to some water and get them baptized. So a couple of things, a couple of things I want to point out here, lest there be any confusion. First of all, the evidence of their salvation is really twofold. One, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that's poured out upon them. That's really all that matters. Although it's evidence in hearing them speak in other tongues or in other languages. That, that the word there for tongue, it's similar to what we saw back in Acts chapter 2. It's other languages. And they're, they're extolling or praising or making much of God. And then Peter starts talking about baptism here. And he starts speaking about them being baptized. Now, now what I want you to notice 
Let me read verse 47 again. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing? Because sometimes people come to this verse specifically and they say, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But you've you got to read what he says next. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Consider the source who's saying this, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. See, what Peter is saying is they are not yet baptized, though they're indistinguishable uh, between myself and these other believers because the Holy Spirit now lives and dwells within them. And see, what he's getting at is baptism is not part of salvation. Baptism is a sign or a symbol that you are saved. Uh, Yesterday, I officiated a wedding, and uh, one of the things that uh, always happens at a wedding is you have people that will exchange rings, and uh, I always like to do the exchange of rings right after the vows, because one of the things I like to tell uh, both the couple and everyone in the room is that the ring, I could wear this, I could not. I choose to wear it for a number of reasons, Uh, but this does not mean that I'm married, What makes me married is the vow that I shared and expressed with my beautiful wife 11 and a half years ago and the commitment and the covenant that we made to one another. That's what makes us married. This is simply a symbol or a sign or a reminder of that reality. Now, baptism is the same thing. It's a symbol. It's a sign. It's a reminder of that very same reality. Uh, Maybe some of you, maybe many of you have uh, never been baptized. In fact, next month, uh, February 22nd, we're going to do a baptism service. And if you find yourself in a place, baptism is an act of obedience. It's not required for salvation, though it is uh, an act of obedience. If you find yourself not having been baptized, uh, the right thing to do would be to be obedient. Uh, Come grab myself or one of our pastors or one of our elders and say, I need to get baptized. Contact the church office. Say, I need someone to call me and, and, and talk to me about being baptized. But as we look at true salvation, let me step back and, and, and treat the baptism thing as maybe a little bit bigger piece here, and we'll tie this off and, and be done. This part of this true salvation is really in the heart of any true believer. There's a desire to make much of God, and there's a desire to do what he calls and tells us to do. And that's exactly what we see in verse 46 and verse 47. In verse 46, they praise God, they make much of God, they extol him. Any heart that has been transformed by God finds themselves in a place at some level where I want to make much, I want to honor, I want to revere, I want to praise, I want to worship God. You go, okay, okay, what's the deal with the baptism thing? What's, what's he getting at there? That's it's really obedience. That's what he's really getting at is that we're obedient. That we do the things that God has called and told us to do. And so salvation orchestrated, it starts with God sovereignly preparing us and then where you and I, right, we, we get the privilege of gospel proclamation. And then by God's grace, there's true salvation that legitimately takes place. Now, as we, as we t- take this and consider our lives, w- what is it that we do with this? This could very easily be very intellectual on a number of levels, very informational. By God's grace, I hope that's not what it's been here this morning. But here's the first thing that we do. First of all, you have to trust the sovereign preparation of God in people's lives. You got to know that God is working, that God is moving, that God's the one that's going to bring them to that place, that God's the one who has to prepare them. You and I can't do that. We can't do it. It's God and God alone who can do that. Second of all, when given the chance, you and I have to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. 
While God does the vast majority of the work, he certainly does the heavy lifting. He does bestow a responsibility upon you and I to share the gospel. Loved ones, we have to be doing this. We have to be proclaiming Jesus. We have to be proclaiming the gospel. That's what it is to live on mission. It's to get the word out. And then finally, 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 when that comes or when that happens, we would pray that true salvation would take hold in the heart of the hearers. That's what it is to have salvation orchestrated. That's what it is to have God move and work in the hearts and lives of not only his people, but those who will one day find themselves uh, as God's people who are not there today. Let's pray.